Hello from ABA Annual 2016 in San Francisco, California. I'm Lawrence Coletti. I'm Kareem Arif. I'm Rashida Grenage. I'm Deb Lawrence. Jeff Adachi. Kathleen Yonahara. And we're on the road with Legal Talk Network. back. Hi, uh, everybody out there today. And we have an incredible panel with us today. So I'm going to start to my left uh, with my co-host, Kareem. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much, Lawrence. Why don't you uh, tell our audience just a little bit about yourself? Fantastic. Well, my name is Kareem Arif. I currently serve as the chair of the law student division of the American Bar Association. I'm a third year law student at UC Davis, uh, which means I'm a year from the bar, which is kind of scary. <laughs> that is a little scary. And our first guest, uh, Rashida, tell us about yourself. Thanks. I live in Oakland. I am uh, the coordinator of the Coalition for Police Accountability. Uh, before that, I was the director of Pueblo, People United for a Better Life in Oakland. And we've been working on the issue of police accountability since the mid-90s. And we are currently about to uh, push forward on a police commission proposal that will be on the ballot November 8th uh, in Oakland. So we're very excited about that. Welcome. And who's the gentleman sitting next to you? Well, I think he can speak for himself. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Dub Lawrence. I'm a former sheriff of Davis County, Utah. I founded the first SWAT team in Davis County in 1975, and I've watched and observed uh, the things that have occurred in law enforcement, both from a civilian perspective, uh, elected official perspective, uh, as a county sheriff, as a law enforcement officer. So I kind of have a balanced approach to trying to solve a problem that I think I think I am very well within my uh, judgment to think and say, clearly, we have a criminal justice system that has gone too far. We are allowing civilians and police officers to be killed unnecessarily by policies, procedures, and protocol that actually creates and enables that. Welcome to the show. And Jeff? My name is Jeff Dacci. I serve as the elected public defender in San Francisco. It's great to be here at the ABA conference. I spoke on a panel yesterday about Ferguson, and I, I'm really glad to see that criminal justice reform is high on the ABA uh, roster. You know, participating in this panel today, I think, really gave the participants and the attendees an opportunity to look at an issue that is often shrouded in secrecy, and we're hoping that this is an issue that uh, the ABA takes up. And last but not least, the moderator of your uh, speaking session, Ms. Uh, Kathleen Yonahara. Thank you. My name is Kathleen Yonahara. I'm an employment partner at Freeland Cooper and Foreman in San Francisco. I also serve as the vice chair of the section of civil rights and social justice, the Civil Rights and Equal Opportunity Committee of the American Bar Association, which sponsored this program. I'm thrilled to be the moderator at this program and very thankful to the esteemed panel that we have gathered here today. Well, Kathleen, I want to start with you. Since you moderated, can you give me the 50,000 foot as to what this particular speaking session was all about? Well, I mean, each of the panelists did an excellent job in exploring the issues of how the current police enforcement agencies have become militarized over time and the use of those types of military equipments in everyday policing, including the execution of a search warrant, 
even where there's a situation where there's no reason to believe that the person presents any life-threatening danger and no weapons are present. Even in those situations, you have a SWAT team come barreling down, knocking down the door, shooting out uh, flashbang grenades, and in some cases, injuring the occupants, including children and infants. So those are some of the issues that we explored. And we wrapped up the panel discussion with recommendations about how to have accountability and forward-looking proposals for how do we address these issues. So uh, just real quick, uh, I know there's a history here with getting some of this more advanced uh, kind of equipment into the hands of local police departments. And so I think there's some congressional, uh, some things that have been passed that, that basically give kind of, I guess, elements of war to the police force in local communities. Well, since 2001, this is Jeff Adachi, public defender in San Francisco. Since 2001, the federal government has spent over $37 billion in providing weaponry uh, to local governments and police departments. And the result of this has been over-militarization of the police department. One of the points that we're making today is that when you arm officers you know, with these weapons of, in many cases, mass destruction, where they can you know, detonate bombs or you know, they can use tanks, this is like what you would expect to see in an uh, army occupation. Uh, they're going to use it. And that's one of the problems is that we're seeing, in many cases, these weapons being deployed and used in situations where it's not justified. Everyone knows about SWAT from the TV shows and the movies. What they may not realize is that most of the time, uh, they're responding to situations where they're serving an arrest warrant for drugs or uh, drug dealing. And again, these are nonviolent crimes. So the idea that they have to use SWAT teams to break into people's homes, and th there are many examples. Uh, there's a report called The War Comes Home that was done by the ACLU, which documents situations where kids are injured, pets are hurt. There are crazy situations that are occurring where people are wrongfully being detained, stopped uh, by police officers and searched in their own homes, and people are being killed. And so this is a situation that the ABA decided to focus on, and we're hoping that we see some action out of this because there's a lack of accountability uh, that is resulting, I think, in law enforcement not being held accountable when things go wrong. Well, where do we draw the line from making sure that they're safe and making sure they're appropriately trained? I mean, you said $37 billion has been spent on weaponry. How are we prioritizing their training and making sure that they're safe at that point? Well, that's, that's one of the big issues that we looked at today. And if you look at how police are trained, 80% of their training goes into how to use weapons, use of force, things of that nature. And they only get like eight hours of training on de-escalation. There's a huge discussion in the United States around use of force because of Black Lives Matters, because of the publicized police shootings and killings around the country. And what we would like to see is a focus on de-escalation, on particularly talking about somebody who's mentally ill. We had a situation in San Francisco in December where a man who's waving a knife around was shot to death by 11 police officers who surrounded him. And they had him surrounded. There's really no question that he was not going to hurt anyone else, yet they were justified in using the most amount of force. And so, again... We're not talking about, is the police officer justified in shooting the person? Anytime you have a person with a weapon, you can say under the Supreme Court standard, yeah, there's a reasonable belief that your life is in danger. But again, when people are seeing situations where people are killed, where are winding up dead, really when the need is not there, when there it could be non-lethal uh, weapons used, uh, tear gas, uh, beanbags, rather than uh, shooting someone to death, 
I think people expect that. We're, you know, the police should not be uh, the judge and jury. Their job is to arrest an individual, no matter what crime they committed. And so we also talked about things like stingrays, which are devices that can be used, a uh, mobile device to use to see you know, who somebody is calling or what conversations are occurring. These kinds of devices, just like drones and other uh, weapons that are being used, you know, have huge consequences for the population when something goes wrong. Do you think the standard is too low then? Do you think we need to hold these officers to a higher standard in the law? Is it time for a change? There is no standard. The federal government is not requiring any sort of accountability in terms of how these weapons are being used. We don't see any reports on how many people are being injured. And they don't quite frankly want to know about that. And so we need to have accountability at, at all levels. We also have to have state and federal legislatures begin to weigh in. And, and actually spell out that SWAT teams should not be used in situations where there is no imminent danger of death. There has to be some standards apply, otherwise it's chaos. So I just kind of want to, building on uh, Kareem's point, uh, you know, I, one of the things I commonly read in coverage when we, when we hear some of these situations come up where they're bringing in heavy equipment and people are feeling alienated from their government when they see these big heavy pieces of equipment is maybe we're asking our police departments to do too much. So there's some thoughts about that? Well, that's what the Dallas police chief indicated he felt. This is Rashida Grenage. I think um, it isn't a question of too much. It's a question of, I think, what are reasonable expectations. When the police motto is to protect and serve, I think a lot in the minority communities have questioned who are they protecting and who are they serving. And I think in a lot of the cases that Jeff just um, alluded to, it appears that they are really more interested in protecting themselves than they are the public. And I think that is the perception that has um, grown as we've seen more and more video footage of many of these incidents. Uh, and even in terms of the, the kind of riot gear that uh, they wear uh, to monitor protests or peaceful assemblies, it does appear that there's far more interest in self-protection than protecting the public, and I think that has become a real issue. Let me ask a follow-up on that, to just to unpack that a little bit. So you're saying that it appears that the officers are more about protecting themselves and not about the public. That Maybe give me a specific example. And you're talking about Dallas, but uh, you know, I, I think when you have an active shooter in there and you're trying to, de- you know, you're trying to deal with the situation as quickly as possible, my mind doesn't go to, you know, they're just protecting themselves. I see it; they're on a mission to stop something that's very dangerous. So maybe walk me through that. That well, line I think of reasoning. Dallas is not a good example of what I was referring to. I think Ferguson would be, okay. um, or Baltimore. I think the way that those protests were being monitored or uh, being patrolled, essentially with people in riot gear and and, uh, tanks, essentially, in the streets. I think that's what I was referring to. Uh, I was only quoting the Dallas police chief when he said he thought the police were expected to do too much. I would just say one thing about the Dallas situation. Sure, you have somebody who has killed and shot multiple people. Yet, you had him cornered in a garage, and they used a robot device to go into the garage and detonate a bomb. I don't care if you have Charles Manson in there. The question is, I mean, do you have to kill a person in, in order to arrest them? In that situation, they didn't need to do that. They could have used tear gas. They could have used other means. And just because you have the device doesn't mean that you should use it. In San Diego, they use the same device, the robot device, to deliver pizza to a suspect and get him to peaceably surrender. Uh, so, again, it's a question of how these devices are used and to what end. 
Kareem, I want to ask one follow-up on that. So uh, we have a sheriff here, obviously, uh, <laughs> Sheriff Lawrence. And so um, if I was to say, you know, on one side of the fence, I'm going to present, is that Monday morning quarterbacking a situation like that as to what Jeff said? No, I think, I think Jeff's right on target. Okay. I go back a long ways. I was a, a police officer in Bountiful City, Utah, before I was elected sheriff of Davis County in 1974, probably before you guys were born. But uh, I have a, a half a century of uh, watching and observing what has happened to law enforcement over the years. In that era, when I was in charge and responsible, our main objective was to diffuse, to neutralize, to bring to a good end every situation. And we would have considered it a failed operation if somebody's life was lost, either a police officer or a civilian. And we served over 16,000 warrants in reasonable hours of the day under a different type of policy procedure protocol. And what we did, uh, 16,000 warrants without a single civilian or a police officer getting hurt, is a record that I'm kind of proud of. And my SWAT team never killed anybody. I came to Los Angeles, California in 1975, and I studied under, uh, at that time, uh, Inspector Darrell Gates and Sheriff Pete Fitches, and I learned about a new concept, special weapons and tactics. And I brought that concept back to Utah, and I established the first SWAT team in Davis County's history in 1975. And I was in charge of that, responsible for that, and was present in charge of several operations that were conducted by the SWAT team. But our objective, our policy, was to neutralize, diffuse. Nobody gets hurt if possible. Now back to your example, uh, the reference that you made of an sh active shooter, a live hostage situation, or a situation where the officers are placed under fire. We even neutralized a couple of instances where the shooters were shooting at the police. And shooting, cars were, in, were hit, my windshield was shot out, my chief deputy was shot in the head by suspects in one instance. So I know personally, firsthand, those kinds of situations. And you do deal with that. You use whatever degree of force is necessary to neutralize the situation and bring the person to justice in a system that we are guaranteed. Every person in the whole United States is guaranteed due process. So even if it's a heinous criminal, uh, and in two cases, uh, actually three of the cases I investigated ended up with capital crimes, and they were convicted and sentenced to death. And I have copies of the warrants that I served that were served where I stood in front of the judge and was asked to not only guarantee that they were executed at the state prison, but uh, I had to you know, do the reports to the court that the order of the court was actually carried out. So in seeing and experiencing all of that over half a century, I can tell you firsthand, my opinion is that we have changed. We are not following the same principles of the Constitution that we used to. We found ways with the war on drugs, the war on crime, the war on terror. By declaring war, we kind of forget the basic fundamental principles that our country's founded on. And in that process, we need to make some corrective changes now to bring back some of that, to restore some of that original intent by our founding fathers. Sheriff, I'd like to follow up on that, actually, because I think that a lot of people would say in today's society we're fundamentally different than it was before. It is at, different. At this point, you know, with people feeling more hostile towards officers because of the whole movements going on and officers feeling more threatened, 
does that change the situation? Or, I mean, how do you think officers should be responding? Obviously, it has changed it. We have a divided society. We're polarized. We polarize each other. It doesn't matter what the issue is, even if it's abortion. Mm -hmm. You know, we're asked by politicians, spin doctors, to choose between life and liberty. You know, I mean, that, that's a complex issue for the Supreme Court to try to figure out, and they've been boggled with it. Absolutely. And so when we try to solve a complex problem like we're trying to do here today, there's so many elements that are present. Yes, definitely. In fact, we are a more violent society, but we also have these issues that are we're misunderstandings of the law. For example, the right to keep and bear arms. You know, the whole... Article 2, or basically the Second Amendment to the Constitution, a well-regulated militia being necessary for the security of a free state, the right to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Well, think about it. <laughs> a bunch of kooks who claim they have a right to have an AK-47 and, and an M-15 and prance up and down the street scaring ladies who are taking their children to elementary school after the situation we had uh, with 20 children shot to death. We have a society that where we respond to fear. We respond to emotionally. Every time something like that happens, our lawmakers run to the, back to the session with a new bill and we get something passed that is not helping our society to grow in the right direction. So those need to be, we need to look at some, some restoration of what once was because we're on the wrong track. We've gone too far. The pendulum swung too far. We need to swing it back to where it's more reasonable and logical. I think uh, also it should be pointed out that fear is um, something that is used proactively by law enforcement to justify how many officers we need in a given location, how much equipment we need, uh, what kind of budget we need to allocate to the police department. And I think that um, even as the war on drugs may be losing currency, it's been replaced by a war on gangs. We've had things like gang injunctions that have justified the use of SWAT and other militarized activities. So I think that um, without being too cynical, uh, it is fair to say that fear is something that is used very deliberately and proactively by law enforcement to justify a lot of their policies and practices. I think most Americans are waking up, though, because there was a survey that was done, uh, a national poll that showed 58% of Americans think that law enforcement has gone too far in terms of militarization, in terms of the tactics that are being used. And consciousness, I think, has been raised by all of these unnecessary police shootings. Uh, so my hope is that we are seeing an era of reform. I agree that, I mean, things have gone uh, too far. And what we need to do is, is look at both on a local, statewide, and federal level, you know, why uh, police departments haven't been able uh, to uh, do their jobs in a way that's consistent with what the public believes is right. And for law enforcement, they need to have the support of the public. They need to be able to solve crimes. They need to have cooperation of witnesses. They, they need to have the support of their local community. And when you have a police department out of control, whether it's police officers who are committing misconduct and you have uh, incidents captured on uh, social media, then the uh, confidence in the police wanes. And, and I think that can be a very dangerous thing. This obviously is a discussion that's more than about equipment. It's about communities' perceptions of how we are implementing and enforcing our laws. Um, as part of this discussion preparing for it, I thought about different times when we had 
use of military equipment in a law enforcement situation, Hurricane Katrina comes to mind where that city, New Orleans, was having a really bad go. I mean, you had floods, the power went out, people were starving, people were panicking, and government broke down. And when the National Guard showed up, when this kind of equipment showed up, things began to get better. They didn't get better right away, but they began to get better. And so I guess I see communities in the title and I see equipment. We've got this equipment that we have. It's really about how it's used is what I'm hearing. Is that correct? I think that's absolutely correct. I mean, the issue isn't just that. The federal government is providing excess military weaponry to the local law enforcement agencies. It's the fact that there's no federal oversight as to how that equipment is being deployed. There's no oversight on any level, really, uh, with the exception of a couple of states that have some legislation. In your opinion, that's necessary to have federal oversight over how the state uses equipment within its own jurisdiction? Yes. I mean, the federal program, one of them being the 1033 program, gives states and local law enforcement agencies excess military equipment, and they actually incentivize the states to use that equipment by requiring them to make use of that equipment within a year of receipt, regardless of whether or not there's any necessity for using that equipment. And there are no parameters that say it only needs to be used in these specified situations where there's a high risk of danger to the safety of the officer. Um, So it's been used in very broad situations, including situations where it's simply to execute a search warrant for possession of marijuana. And I don't think that is an appropriate use. Sounds like that creates a conflict is what you're saying. So you better use this or you lose it. And a police department doesn't want to be without resources. So like, all right, we'll we'll drive this tank. We'll bring this gear to the to, to the job. So just so I make sure I'm understanding that. So if the police are given a tank, for instance, and it's the end of the year and they have to use it by the end of their deadline, they're supposed to take a joyride around or if they have a tear gas grenade kind of thing? That's a good question. I I think, I mean, the the law does require its use. I don't know if driving uh, around the block constitutes (laughs) use. No, it's it's like um, if a department has six SWAT team officers, uh, it's hard to justify six full-time officers when they have four life and death threatening situations a month. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so they've been used for investigative tools. They use them to investigate drug cases, uh, serving search warrants. They use them in lots of ways that uh, really uh, is a misuse of, of the equipment, the design of the equipment. I really don't think it was necessary to put that part into the law when they did it. They shouldn't have done that because it created an incentive. And it also, the officers are protected because there are no guidelines, there are no state laws in place. Well, Utah has one now that's the only state uh, a year ago that had any regulation requiring some report, some accountability for the use of SWAT teams. But still, basically stated across the nation, uh, it's unregulated, it's unmonitored, they're free to use whatever degree of force or whatever equipment that they have at their disposal to do whatever they want. And that discretionary power is dangerous. So have we created a system where they're using these because they're free to do so, which increases distrust in the police, which then, I mean, created basically a vicious cycle that... Exactly. That's, so, that's what we're trying to deal with. So that's where does it complicate. end? Yeah. It doesn't if we keep escalating. Okay. <laughs> it doesn't end. We have, I mean, every time you turn around, you hear Congress talking about reform. 
you know, everything from campaign finance reform to, to criminal justice reform. That tells us any bright person in America should be able to recognize when they say reform, that means that those old incumbents in Washington, they made some mistakes and they need to correct it. You know, it's, uh, uh, we have some bad laws and they need to be changed. And so by increasing the level of dialogue, by having smart people, intelligent people, experienced people look at this and actually accept some of the good solutions that are coming from ABA and other organizations, uh, civilian oversight of police. These are great organizations that are trying to help our country move in the right direction. So I applaud them. I applaud attorneys like Jeff. I applaud people like the ABA membership and, and these civilian involved people who do a wonderful job of trying to bring us back to a, a realm uh, that's different than the direction we're taking politically, even in our national presidential election. We're dividing our country. We're polarizing our country. We're causing unnecessary strife and concern on both sides. And it's not us against them. It's not the police against the civilians. It shouldn't be. But we have grown in that direction, and we need to change our course. And, and you have a film coming out about yeah. the tragedy involving your son-in-law. You got to tell people to watch it now. Okay, uh, you got to watch Peace Officer. Uh, it's a story of my life. Basically, my son-in-law. I founded the SWAT team in 1975. That same SWAT team killed my son-in-law on 22nd of September 2008. And so those filmmakers followed me around for two and a half years and watched what I do and recorded it. And there were some 29 cases that I helped reconstruct, uh, crime scene reconstruction, and five of those cases were problematic. And those five cases are traced and shown uh, to some extent in the film Peace Officer. And in there, it's considered one of the most balanced approaches uh, to the issue that's out there. And Peace Officer, the film, uh, it's available. You can download it to uh, iTunes. You can see it on Hulu right now. It should be out on Netflix fairly soon. It's, been, uh, it's being used as a training film uh, by police departments and civilian organizations across the country. And I spend most of my time now uh, as an old retired senior citizen hobbling around trying to help people <laughs> understand that there is a better way. There is a better way. Peace Officer is a good tool. So watch it. Okay. I'd actually like to add that it was actually the Peace Officer documentary that was the inspiration for this ABA program. Uh, that documentary was co-directed by Brad Barber, who is my brother-in-law's partner's brother. Um, I watched the screening of that film in San Francisco, and it was absolutely moved and touched by that documentary and inspired me to put together this program. I'm so honored that Dub Lawrence was able to join us from Utah, as well as Jeff Adachi. From flyover Just, country. That's yeah. right. <laughs> uh, our San Francisco public defender and Rashida Grenache. I wanted to thank them all for coming. It's been a wonderful panel. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, I think that's a great place to leave it. We've certainly reached the end of the road for today's episode, but I want to thank our guests in turn for joining us. Uh, I would like to thank Rashida. Thank you so much for coming down. Pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Sheriff Lawrence Dub. Thank you yeah. for coming down. And uh, Jeff, thank you so much for joining us. I know it wasn't a very long trip for you, but we appreciate it anyway. And uh, Kathleen, thank you so much. My and pleasure. I want to also thank my co-host, Kareem, for uh, sitting this one with me. It was great to have you on the air with me today. And I think we got some, uh, some pretty good, insightful questions asked. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for that. Uh, I want to thank our guests for joining us again. And uh, we want to thank our listeners for tuning in. If you liked what you heard today, please rate us on iTunes. We'll see you next time on another episode of On the Road with Legal Talk Network. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. 
Subscribe via iTunes and RSS. Find us on Twitter and Facebook. Or download our free Legal Talk Network app in Google Play and iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thank you.